Hello and welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo. And as I threatened slash promised after last week's episode on full on full cast and crew, on Fast Times at Ridgemont High, I needed more Spicoli. I wasn't ready to be done with the movie yet. And since Ted Jessup did such a great job preparing and uh, having so many interesting things to comment about in regards to the film, we necessarily spent, you know, the time we needed to spend on Spicoli and on Sean Penn. But I was struck in hatching this idea to talk more about Spicoli and specifically to go through all of the, I believe, 22 times that Spicoli appears on screen in the movie that I realized it's one of the great American film performances. And I know that's going to sound like a hot take, but if you think about iconic characters in American movies, this is certainly in the pantheon. If you wanted to just limit it to comedy films, I don't know why you would, but let's say you wanted to do that. It's certainly one of the most indelible comedy performances in American movies. Someone left a otherwise very trenchant and witty observation on the full cast and crew Instagram page post that I made featuring Jeff Spicoli. You can't miss it. It's got the smiling photo of him from my favorite Spicoli cutaway. And they called him a, an edible character. And I thought, wow, does that mean that, you know, he's so good you could eat him up? I said, edible? And they, re- they replied, sorry, spell check, indelible. Yes, it's an indelible performance. It's made all the more amazing, as Ted and I discussed in the episode, by the brilliance of Ray Walston's scenes opposite Spicoli. But both of those performances have something in common, which is that together they are dynamite, but individually, when they're on screen without each other, they're also particularly worth watching. And in this episode, I'm going to go through each of the 22 Jeff Spicoli scenes, and we're going to talk about them. Now, the first one occurs in the opening credits sequence to the film. And it's not a dialogue appearance per se, but it is important, I realized in watching this film or watching the Spicoli scenes again for this episode, it's important because it tells us something specific about Spicoli, which we will come to know as we come to know the character. And in the opening sequence, you can see all the characters arriving at or, or occupying positions within the mall where we're going to be based for the film. The way that we meet Spicoli is we're in the arcade and we see a bunch of cutaways to arcade screens and we see Spicoli observing someone playing a game. And then I believe it's his little brother, Curtis, who kind of rudely shakes Spicoli's shoulder and seems to be asked, give me a quarter, I think is what he's saying. And instead of sort of pummeling Curtis as older brothers are legally required and enabled by law to do, Instead, Spicoli does the, hey, you got something on your shirt, and then tweaks the kid's nose and then ruffles his hair, and they're all sort of laughing and smiling. And it's really important because it's it's the essential decency of Spicoli, which we're going to come to understand. And this is part of the infrastructure that Penn, and really Penn alone, put together in his head. Because I think another thing that's impressive about this performance is The Spicoli lines are written on the page. Um, You can read the screenplay. They're in there. You can read the book. They're in there. He did do a number of ad libs, which we talked about in the episode, and which I'll mention again here just in passing. But it's on the page. The difference is 
the amount of time, effort, and preparation that Sean Penn put into creating a multi-layered person, a real person who transcends the genre by his performance. And the really intelligent part of the performance is the unexpected mix of decency, presence, and cluelessness, all inhabiting equal parts of the same person. And as we talk about these scenes, I think you will understand where they come in and where they come up. Now, the first Spicoli dialogue scene takes place in All-American Burger, and it's the introduction of the Spicoli crew, which is Sean Penn, Anthony Edwards, and Eric Stoltz. They come into All-American Burger and they take their shirts off. Daddy's homeboys, they shall serve no fries for their time. This one's on you, dude. Who's got the Buku Dolores today? Now, I want to stop down and say, we all know Spicoli now, but it occurred to me watching this film, imagine seeing this for the very first time, and there is no reference point in American pop culture or American films or at this time for this accent being on screen. The boldness of the choice is striking when you consider that fact that accent, the buku de la, I mean, it's just so itself. And it's the confidence of that, that I think is such a bold and impressive choice that people were allowed to keep this in the film, that Amy Heckerling and Cameron Crowe were allowed to keep this in the film because it doesn't tick a lot of traditional boxes. Uno dinero. What have you got, Mr. Buckman? I got a cigarette. I got uno nicolette. <laughs> hey. And there's the first Spicoli laugh. And even though it's not a line of dialogue, Sean Penn creating that laugh for Spicoli is absolutely perfect because it embodies this joyful sense of humor about his own actions and behavior. It's a childlike enthusiasm, if you will. It's more than just being stoned, although that's part of it. And I think when you deconstruct the Spicoli performance, as I'm doing here, you have to pay attention to all these little tweaks and nuances. And a couple more will come up as the scene plays out. You guys had shirts on when you came in here. There's something happened to him, Mom. <laughs> come on, Spicoli, just put the shirts back on. And this is, this is a great little interchange because it's all in good fun for Spicoli. But at the same time, he has this look on his face after Judge Reinhold says, come on, Spicoli, put the shirts on. He has kind of a defiant look on his face, but also not committed, not committedly defiant. He's not going all the way to the mattresses on this one. He's looking at the Eric Stoltz character across the table and he's holding his hands in such a way and he has a very specific kind of smirk on his face where he's considering how far to take this. And again, this is all completely visible and present. I'm not, I'm not putting on top of this performance any pretentious uh, delineation here. Like you can watch this film or just even scroll through and watch the Spicoli scenes and you'll see these things for yourself. You see that sign? No shirt, no shoes. No, die so. <laughs> All right. Learn it. Know it. 
Live it. Well, he's the full hot already. Okay. I had to have the subtitles on and cross-check this. The throwaway line from Spicoli is, he's the full hot orator. (laughs) Which is a layer of genius to this scene that I never even knew existed in all the times I saw the film. He's the full hot orator. Like, who says that? Who comes up with that? Who mashes up something like, the Roman empire or something that, that being an orator, you know, uh, comes to mind. (laughs) He's the full hot orator. That's the first Spicoli scene. So many things are represented apparent and apparent. It's just genius. Spicoli's third appearance in the film is in the school parking lot as the third bell rings. We're here. And it's just a genius bit of physical comedy performance that, again, Sean Penn came up with, according to Amy Hackerling and Cameron Crowe, where the van door opens and these three stoners jump out. Spicoli rolls out and falls on the ground, gets himself up, puts on his shades, and walks to school after the third bell, so he's late. And this is just another little bit of this comic troupe's perfection. And then you have the genius of Ray Walston. You know, again, Aloha. someone pointed out to me, my name is Mr. Hat. Something really fascinating about this scene on Instagram, which is that the entirety of Mr. Han's interactions with Spicoli are referenced in this monologue. I never noticed that before, and he's absolutely right. I have but one question for you. Can you attend my class? It is for your own good, and if you can't make it, I can make you. We have a 20-question quiz every Friday. And this is another your little fun part, is, is Spicoli's walk. I actually looked at some footage of Sean Penn at this age to try and find out if this is how Penn walks, but I'm pretty sure it's not. If you watch this scene where Mr. Hand is in the classroom, and Spicoli is lost in the hallway of his own school, by the way, <laughs> looking for said classroom, Penn is doing this kind of pigeon-toed walk with his left foot in the hallway. And I have to think that's, again, part of what a young actor like Sean Penn would come up with as part of the complete package of his Spicoli performance, which includes not only physical attributes such as the voice, the laugh, facial expressions, but also the carriage of his body and the way he walks and... The clothing. I mean, all of this stuff is thought out. This is what an actor would do. And of course, actors, I think, always want to have, they want to give their characters interesting limps or something. I think in the Titanic episode that I did recently, I mentioned that Leonardo DiCaprio had kind of lobbied James Cameron to allow his Jack Dawson character to have a limp, you know, to to just really kind of sell it. But um when you watch this again, watch for the, for the pigeon-toed walk, which is a perf- perfect little bit of Spicoli. But again, this monologue is Mr. Hand uh, having a premonition about everything that's about to happen between him and Spicoli. Term and final, which counts for one-third. Got it? Also, uh, there will be no eating. E-A-T-I-N-G. No eating in this class. You get used to doing your own business on your own time. That's one demand I make. 
just like you wouldn't want me to come to your house some evening and discuss U.S. history on your time. Understand? Yes, sir. And there you have the presaging of all the things that are going to happen between Mr. Hand and Spicoli. And this is the first... This guy's been stoned since the third grade. Mono e mano scene. Yes? Yeah, I'm registered in this class. What class? This is U.S. history. See the globe right there. Really? Hey. May I come in? Oh, please. <laughs> now, again, in addition to the Sean Penn ad lib, I see the globe right there. You have Spicoli's genuine presence in the moment. And his complete cluelessness to the fact that he's in the wrong, which is part of his charm for everyone but Mr. Hand. So he's in this class. He's got his little laugh. May I come in? I mean, the, the concept of Spicoli saying, may I come in, is so genius unto itself. And Mr. Hand meets that genuineness and that presence in the moment with what Spicoli doesn't yet recognize is sarcasm. And I think that's so pointed that, that the Mr. Hand character, the Ray Walston, is so good at assuming the superior position in the scene. And Sean Penn plays the opposite part of that scene without trying to one-up him in that way. That's going to come back later in more Mr. Hand Spicoli scenes. But in this one, you know, Spicoli is genuine. He's in this class. May he come in? I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell oh, ring and all my kids are not here. <sighs> Sorry I'm late. It's just like this new schedule is totally confusing. And another little bit of genius here is that as he welcomes Spicoli into the classroom, Mr. Hand helps him off with his backpack. And Spicoli doesn't even question that. He just, he, he turns in order to assist Mr. Hand in taking his own backpack off. And then again, the genuineness of that response. Sorry, I'm late. It's just like this new schedule is totally confusing. And he hands him the card. I know that, dude. Another Mr. Sean Penn improv. Spicoli. That's the name they gave me. You're ripping my car. Yeah. Okay, this is really important because in this scene, we have multiple stages of dawning awareness on Spicoli's face. The first part is disbelief. Hey, you're ripping my card. Hey, bud, what's your problem? And there's a beat, and Spicoli's looking at Mr. Hand uncomprehendingly. And then Spicoli realizes after disbelief that there's a challenge afoot. No problem at all. And this is one of the great camera moves in the movie. The camera moves from left to right and tracks Ray Walston as he is absolutely staring down Spicoli slash Sean Penn. Because we know from the making of materials that these two did not get along during the filming and that in this scene, particularly Ray Walston at one point took a break, walked off, grabbed director Amy Heckerling and said, you tell that young man I don't need his help. Because part of the ad lib leading up to the famous you dick line was that Sean used a variety of profanities and strange phrases trying to throw Ray Walston off his game. But in this scene, Ray Walston is staring daggers into Spicoli's face, and Spicoli is standing right there with him. 
I think you know where the front office is. You dick! I have taken the time to print up a complete schedule of class quizzes and the chapters they cover. Please pass them to the desks behind me. Back, back, back. And what's cool here is after that, even after Spicoli says, you dick, Mr. Hand just ignores him. He Spicoli ceases to exist for Mr. Hand. He has dismissed him, and Spicoli is stunned. And so round one of Mr. Hand Spicoli goes to Mr. Hand. He's torn up Spicoli's card. He sent him to the office, and he has punctured Spicoli's genial good-naturedness by fixating on the aspect where Spicoli is late for class. And again, it's kind of like Spicoli's not a malicious character. He's not lying at all, ever, about why he's late. He's just simply being straight, truthfully honest about it's difficult for him to get places on time. I know that, dude. Okay, so that's his fourth appearance, and that's the one that tees up the time that Spicoli is referenced in the movie but is not on screen, and that's the cafeteria scene between Linda and Stacy that will eventually include the famous carrot scene. Uh, but they are basically gossiping or Linda saying, hey, did you hear that guy, that stoner guy pulled a gun on Mr. Hand? And, and, and Stacy's like, no, no, he just called him a dick. And again, it, it, I think it indicates for us that Spicoli is the character in the school that everyone gossips about who stories and legends get affixed and attached to. Now, his fifth appearance is fascinating. This is, we are now back in Mr. Hand's classroom. And this is round two between Mr. Hand and Spicoli. C, D, F. And the genius of Ray Walston here is the way his physicality embodies just the dropping of the grades. was introduced into Congress by Senator John Clack. It was passed in 1906. This amendment to our Constitution has a profound impact upon all of our... Where is Jeff Spicoli? I saw him earlier today near the first floor bathrooms. Is he still on campus? Anyone? Yes, Desmond? I saw him by the food machines. How long ago? Right before class. Okay. Bring him in. Okay, Desmond, you're a narc, by the way. You'll pay for that. Uh, but Ray Walston, man, genius. I know we talked about this in the previous episode, but his full commitment to this character is equal to what Sean Penn is doing, although Mr. Hand doesn't have quite as many dimensions. But that's why they're so great together. Because I think if Mr. Hand was all had some like weird complexity or underbelly as a character, it would just be too much. And I think Ray Walston's classical training, as Ted said in the full episode, is what really brings this to life. This fascination with truancy. What is it that gets inside your heads? There are some teachers in this school who look the other way at truancy. It's a little game that you both play. They pretend they don't see you. You pretend you don't ditch. Now, who pays the price later? You. Wait a minute. There's no birthday party for you here. 
Now, that's a great entry line because very pointedly, the filmmakers have put in the sound of the, his classmates laughing at him, not with him in this scene. They're laughing at him. Now, to me, that adds to the charm of the character because I personally don't want to laugh at Spicoli. And this might just be my own lifelong appreciation for characters like give me an A or give me an F, but I mean, give me the interesting weird character and I want to observe them in their natural habitat and I don't judge or blame them for their strange performative behaviors because they are something different than what we get walking among us day in and day out. And another pen improv was with the bagel tucked into his waistband of his jeans. He's not wearing his shoes. He's carrying the, the checkerboard Vans, which is another Sean Penn touch, by the way. Vans sneaker sales skyrocketed as this film took off. And again, he is completely present in the moment. And he is again completely wrong. He is late again. But instead of offering up an excuse or trying to lie, he is completely present. Oh, Mr. Hand, what's the reason for your truancy? Just couldn't make it on time. You mean you couldn't or you wouldn't? Well, it's like a full crowd scene at the food line. Food will be eaten on your time. Why are you continuously late for this class, Mr. Spicoli? Why do you shamelessly waste my time like this? There's a great moment here. Why are you continually late for my class, Mr. Spicoli? He looked, the cutaway is to Spicoli and Sean Penn almost answers the question and it's, and they keep this amazing little head bob look like, again, that's part of the presence of the Spicoli character in each of these scenes. He really does want to answer the question. Uh, he doesn't yet understand that Mr. Hand is still fucking with him, but he tries physically to answer the question as he will now. I don't know. <laughs> and he answers it genuinely, which Mr. Hand writes on the board. I don't know. He doesn't know. And that, again, is part of the genius of Sean Penn's performance. I like that. <laughs> I don't know. That's nice. Mr. Han, will I pass this class? Gee, Mr. Spicoli, I don't know. That's nice. I really like that. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to leave your words on this board for all my classes to enjoy. Giving you full credit, of course, Mr. Spicoli. All right. <laughs> and what's brilliant, again, is Spicoli doesn't know Mr. Han is making fun of him. All right. Like, his, the look on his face, Sean Penn, does a perfectly believable mild stoke as he believes he is achieving some type of an honor in this situation of a class that he's missed the entirety of. <laughs> it's so good. Spicoli's sixth appearance is when Jefferson, the uh, football player character, meets Damone and Rat in the mall. And Jefferson's little brother is with him and they're going to approach Damone for Earth, Wind and Fire tickets. But before that, you have this little overdubbed scene between the little brother and Spicoli, which is going to set up the later use of the car, which they then destroy. But this is an interesting scene that I want to comment on. All right, baby. Tell him. All right. You got quarters? 
Okay, so A, <laughs> you have Spicoli's friendship with someone not even in his own grade. Jefferson's brother is clearly a lower school classmate, you know, probably in, I don't know, sixth grade or something, whereas Spicoli's in high school. And in addition, he's, of course, black. And I think the scene is meant to show us once again that the Spicoli character does not have limitations or biases. He's not a racist. He's not uh, isolating himself from anyone. And he may be more of a intellectual fit with the younger generation, let's say. But the, the way the scene is played between him and Jefferson's younger brother, uh, they're friends and they want to go play Pac-Man. And of course, Spicoli doesn't have any quarters and they dap it up. And so I think this is part of the Spicoli, any and all are welcome. Even as we shall see at the end of the film, Mr. Hand is welcome into his tribe. The only tribe Spicoli belongs to is the tribe of righteous dudes. And if you meet him there, he's ready to accept you, whoever you may be. I want to be Now, the seventh appearance is one of the most iconic Spicoli scenes in the film. This is the dream sequence where he has fantasized that he has won the surfing competition. He's got the two models on his arm. He's interviewed by Stu Nahan, does a great job. Now, this scene originally, I don't think Ted and I got to this in the episode. I wanted to make sure to mention this because it was kind of a funny story. In the book, Cameron Crowe's book, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, this Spicoli dream sequence takes place where Spicoli is a... Uh, guest on the Johnny Carson show. And he and Johnny yuck it up and are close. And this is Spicoli's fantasy as he's famous and he's on the Johnny Carson show, I think for winning a surf contest. And when they were making the film, they went out to Johnny Carson, who I believe just passed on it and wouldn't do this type of a thing. And so they went to their next stop, which was Tom Snyder, who, if you've listened to the pod, I think I've mentioned Tom Snyder several times. You know, again, talking about my appreciation for weirdos and characters. Well, in the world of late night talk shows, Tom Snyder is definitely one of the weirdest characters who ever occupied that desk in that chair. He outwardly could resemble just another sort of blow-dried, well-coiffed talk show host, but he was weird. If you watch Tom Snyder clips, he's got a weirdness to him. There's just something about him, but he jumps off the screen. He's got strange verbiage. And there is something about him that made him, I think, the stoner's choice uh, for many years of his career. Because he's a little off. He's not counterculture. You know, he's not, um, he's not a beatnik or a hippie, but he's weird in a great way. So Cameron Crowe approached Tom Snyder to see who in, actually, in a lot of ways, he's a better fit for this scene if they were going to do the fantasy talk show appearance than Johnny Carson would have been. Because Spicoli and Snyder would have grokked. They would have, they would have like totally respected and gotten each other. I would have loved to have seen that scene. And I think that we would have, if not for some bad timing. The bad timing was that when Cameron called Tom Snyder, Tom Snyder had just, I guess, left the Tomorrow Show. And he said, you're catching me on my last day. I'm going home. I'm going to get drunk. But thank you for thinking of me, which is, by the way, a super pro move in the entertainment business. If you have to turn down a job or someone wants you for something for any reason, 
you know, thanking them for thinking of you is the classiest thing that you can do because it's, it presumes the awareness on your part that to simply have been asked is an honor. And that's a lesson I think you can, you can take away from this scene. The world's finest surfers showed up today to do battle with what's turned out to be the biggest waves to hit this coast since 1946. Hello, everybody. I'm Stu Nahan. I'd like you to meet this young man. His name, Jeff Spicoli. And Jeff, congratulations to you. Things look kind of rough out there today. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Stu, I did battle with some humongous waves. But, you know, just like I told the guy on ABC, <laughs> danger is my business. <laughs> you know, a lot of people expect that maybe Mark Cutback Davis or Bob Jungle Death Gerard would take the honors this year. Oh, those guys are facts. <laughs> That's fantastic. Let me ask you a question. When you get out there, do you ever fear for your life? Well, Sue, I'll tell you, surfing's not a sport. It's you know, it's interesting here. I mentioned this briefly in the episode with Ted Jessup, which was... I kind of waited for Amy Heckerling and Cameron Crowe to address the kind of casual homophobia that appears at least twice in Fast Times. Once in the very first opening scene, the credit sequence that starts the film, someone tacks a note on the back of a character that says, I am a homo. And then you have Spicoli here calling his two surfer competitors fags. And curiously, both Amy and Cameron dropped out quietly at that moment of the commentary track on the Criterion and didn't really address this. So... You know, I guess it doesn't need a tremendous amount of addressing, but it is something that falls oddly to today's ears and probably fell oddly to ears then. But there is a certain kind of casual homophobia, as we said in the episode, that I think is, is, is laced throughout some films like this. Another movie that I plan to do on the pod is uh, Slapstick, Slapshot, Slapstick, Slapshot with Paul Newman. And as I rewatched that a couple times in preparation for eventually doing it here as an episode, man, it is more than laced through with more than casual homophobia. It's a pretty unseemly undercurrent throughout the entire film. And it's, it's weird. You know, it's one of those things where, and I, I will get into this when we do it as an episode, but, you know, the film is really based on the screenwriter Nancy Dowd's brothers' experiences in the amateur hockey leagues. And so while there may be some verisimilitude, that favorite word of the pot again, in truthfully depicting the hockey players, it's, it's also not necessary for what the film is really about, the countercultural aspects of what the film is trying to do. So that was kind of a jarring surprise when I watched that, as were these two instances in Fast Times. And what is also interesting about this scene is although we get some classic Spicoli, uh, in the line coming up about asking Stu Nahan about his jacket. This is also a heightened version of Spicoli. It's a dream version. And there again, I think, is the genius of Sean Penn. He knew enough to take the Spicoli persona to a slightly different position on the knob. He turned it up just a little bit so that it, it plays a little off to you. And remember, you have to think about Watching this film for the first time, you don't know this is a dream sequence until it fades out at the end with the wavy woo-woo-woo thing and you get back to Spicoli in his bedroom. But the way Spicoli is just a little off is, is a great choice and it lends something else to the characterization because this is how Spicoli sees himself. This is the unexpurgated Spicoli. You know, every other scene in the film, we're experiencing Spicoli partly through the reactions of others. This is the only scene in the film where we are inside Spicoli's brain. 
And for that, I think it's a very valuable. Hit that wave and saying, hey, bud, let's party. <laughs> Where'd you get this jacket? I got this in the network. Let me ask you a question. What's next for Jim And that's just so great. Not only Spicoli's, hey, where'd you get this jacket? The genuineness of that, the genuine curiosity of that question. And then Stu Nahan's perfect deadpan as a result. Uh, and then my favorite part of this scene. Get up. Dad says you have to get up. Dad says you're going to be late again, you butthole. Leave me alone. Dad says you're going to be late again, you booger. Now, in addition to the genius of the line, Dad, Jeff threw a snorkel at me, which is great. Kudos to you, Cameron Crow. As Ted pointed out in the episode, the production design of Spicoli's room is absolutely genius and worthy of note here. Just pointing out a couple highlights in this scene where the genius of Penn is that he's sleeping in character as Spicoli. I mentioned that in the episode. I want you to look for that again. But among the set dressings behind him is what looks like a jar of mustard, uh, a beer bottle, a carton of Winston's, one of those wine bottles with the wicker weaving, all kinds of surf and pinup posters. And his blankets are groovy. Uh, he's got an ashtray right next to his bed. <laughs> it's just so good. Yeah. <laughs> Now, Spicoli's eighth appearance is another just cutaway of Spicoli. He's sleeping in the bleachers while Eric Stoltz makes a paper airplane. And there's the two genius cheerleaders who screechingly are beseeching their classmates to drum up a little school spirit in advance of the big game against Lincoln. And it's just a little throwaway shot, but it's Spicoli sleeping. And I think his feet are in Stoltz's lap, which is kind of nice. His ninth appearance is another scene with Jefferson's little brother, and this is the funny scene where they're in the car. Seeing the new Playboy? Good. Oh, Derek's tits. All right. I like sex. Just some strange dialogue. I don't know. This is probably one of the clunkiest dialogue sections in the whole movie. I like sex. Okay. That line, people on lose, should not drive. That's one of the lines that became iconic in the immediate aftermath of the release of the film. And what's great about this scene, aside from part of the soundtrack which annoyed the hell out of Amy Heckerling, this is Sammy Hagar, presumably an Irving Azoff client. So as they go through this scene, Again, you have the Spicoli, the friendship with the younger brother, and the accident that transpires is brilliant because, A, it's a little bit of action in a film that doesn't have car chases or things of that nature. The car culture aspect of 80s life, Amy Heckerling, as we had said in the episode, was really inspired uh, by uh, American Graffiti, George Lucas's uh, first feature film, second feature film, and... You could imagine the car culture could have been a little bit more of a thing in the film. There's a few car scenes. As Ted pointed out, there's three cars or four cars that we see. But what's great about this scene is, again, another Sean Penn improv line after the car crash where uh, he, he, he tells Jefferson's brother that his, his old man is going to be the answer to their prayers. My brother's going to kill us. 
He's gonna kill us. He's gonna kill you and he's gonna kill me. He's gonna kill us. Hey, man, just be glad I had fast reflexes. My brother's gonna shit. Make up your mind, dude. Is he gonna shit or is he gonna kill us? First he's gonna shit, then he's gonna kill us. Relax, all right? My old man is a television repairman. He's got this ultimate set of tools. I can fix it. You can't fix this car, Smokali. I can fix it. Now, what's great about this sequence here, A, the ultimate set of tools is just hilarious. Uh, his father being a TV repairman and what tools would be shared between a TV repairman and auto mechanic, I don't know. But what's brilliant about this in terms of the Spicoli character is the genuine glass half full positive belief. Now, this is a characteristic I tend to share with Jeff Spicoli. Uh, my wife makes fun of me for this all the time. But Spicoli's reaction here, I can fix it. He believes that. He's not lying. And this is another sequence where, again, he's not trying to make excuses. He's not trying to accept or deflect blame. The situation they're in is just the situation they're in, even though it is Spicoli's fault. <laughs> but what's great about this scene is when he says, my old man has the ultimate set of tools, I can fix it. And the kid says, you can't fix this car, Spicoli. Penn leans out the window and looks at the damage. And the cutaway shot clearly indicates to we, the viewers, that the damage is unfixable. There are literally piles of cinder blocks on top of the car. A lesser character, a lesser individual, a more realistic individual, you might say, would get back into the car and simply acknowledge, you're right, I can't fix it. But that's not what Spicoli does. Spicoli doubles down. I can fix it. He believes that he can. And that is one of the great building blocks of the Spicoli character. Now, the 10th appearance is a fascinating one. And in many ways, it's the most anachronistic Spicoli scene in the film. It's the scene that immediately follows the wreck scene. And Spicoli's fixing it in the time that has transpired because it's nighttime when he crashes the car. Now we're back at Ridgemont High. And the answer that Spicoli has clearly come up with is to further destroy the car and spray paint pro-Lincoln High School graffiti, anti-Ridgemont High School graffiti all over the car and relocate it to the high school, which clearly places the blame on Lincoln. And what's brilliant about this scene is here we get another Spicoli, a Spicoli you never see again. This time when we have a cutaway to Spicoli, he's dressed in these dark muted blues. He has a blue shirt, a blue turtleneck, which is kind of pointed, and he has a blue knit watch cap. And the look on Penn's face when we first cut away to him is very seriously possessed of the awareness that he has done this. And he's cautiously monitoring the scene to see if he can get away with it. And so here you see Spicoli stripped almost more revealingly than in his dream sequence. Because in a way, this is the most real Spicoli you get in the whole film. This is the one where he is potentially at jeopardy and he doesn't have easy answers or a glib rejoinder to get out of the trouble. But he does have a plan, and a very smart plan, I, I would add, and a plan that not only benefits himself and Jefferson's little brother, but it also benefits the school, because the rage induced in Jefferson causes them to win the big football rivalry, which all students, including Spicoli, are present for. That's part of the togetherness of the, of the school setting. 
So in so many ways, this is such a fascinating second, uh, two or three cutaways to Spicoli because it's a whole different persona than the one we're presented with elsewhere in the film. Then we have two quick appearances, which are again, just Spicoli scenes without dialogue. Um, his 12th or 11th appearance is Spicoli in the bleachers. He's laughing. The stress and the tension of the previous scene has been released. It's all okay. He got away with it. And the 12th appearance is he's dapping up Jefferson's brother again in the stands. The scene Im implies, hey, we got away with it. Our plan worked. Now, his 12th appearance is probably my favorite Spicoli scene in the film. It's certainly my favorite cutaway to Sean Penn. And yet again, it's another nuance to the character. In this scene, we're back in Mr. Han's classroom, and this is the very famous pizza feast scene. And what's brilliant about the way this is set up is Mr. Hand is once again the full hot orator. Think about it. Cuba owned by a disorganized parliament over 4,000 miles away. Cubans were in a constant... Now again, in the battle between Mr. Hand and Spicoli, the first two rounds of which, I guess you could say, went to Mr. Hand technically, although the second one where Spicoli's like, all right, and kind of chuffed that Mr. Hand is going to leave I don't know on the blackboard. I, I'm going to either put that in the Spicoli column or a neutral because Mr. Hand doesn't diminish Spicoli, even though he's trying to. So to me, Spicoli is still triumphant in that scene. So if we called it 1-1, okay, in this scene, Spicoli has the upper hand because Mr. Hand is in full or hot orator mode, dropping history. And he looks over and he's actually interrupted and surprised by the fact that Spicoli is fully present and accounted for. He's sitting up in his chair, his eyes are clear, and he gives the greatest smile to Mr. Hand. And that smile, that shot is so winningly brilliant. I want you to look for it. Study it, master it, learn it. It's brilliant. And it throws Mr. Hand entirely. And Spicoli knows it. Ray Walston perfectly plays the uncomfortableness of the scene before he goes back to lecturing. Cubans were in a constant state of revolt. In 1904, the United States decided to throw a little weight around and... Uh... And here's Spicoli getting the upper hand. Who is it? The pizza guy. Again? Mr. Pizza Guy, sir. What are the double cheese and sausage? Right here, dude. Now, again, Spicoli's money is in character. His money is crumpled, and he doesn't really even know how much is there. He just sort of reaches into the pocket of his Serape pullover and hands over his cash to the great Taylor Negron, by the way. May he rest in peace. Great use of him, and he personifies the Mr. Mr. Pizza Guy character so well. Um, one of the continuity things that bothers me in the film, I don't know why they let this go. Why don't just change the line? Probably because they couldn't. Either change the line or make sure you get the right pizza. It's not a double sausage and cheese. It's just a cheese pizza. We see that visibly when Mr. Hands starts handing out the pizza slices. Here you dude. Am I hallucinating here? Just what in the hell do you think you are doing? Learning about Cuba, having some food. 
learning about Cuba, having some food. Again, totally present, not necessarily fucking with Mr. Hand, although I do think in part of the ongoing battle here and in knowing that Mr. Hand has one rule, no eating, eating will be done on your time. He is tweaking Mr. Hand. He's doing it on purpose. He's fucking with him. He is there. He's present. He's listening. He's attentive. And he ordered a disruptive pizza. Mr. Spicoli, you're on dangerous ground here. You're causing a major disturbance on my time. I've been thinking about this, Mr. Hand. If I'm here and you're here, doesn't that make it our time? Certainly there's nothing wrong with a little feast on our time. You're absolutely... Now, this is impeccable logic from Spicoli. You know, this is like a Socratic Spicoli who is, who is right. This is our time. We are here together. And to his credit, Mr. Hand is not phased by that. He immediately susses out what's going on. This is, again, Mr. Hand is not a fool. And neither is Spicoli. Spicoli plays the fool, serves that role in the film, The Comedic Relief. But Mr. Hand is so quick on the uptake that he immediately pivots. Right, Mr. Spicoli. It is our time. Yours, mine, and everyone else's in this room. But it is my class. Hamilton, Brandt, Kornfeld, up front. Mr. Spicoli has been kind enough to bring us a snack. Be my guest. Help yourselves. Get a good one. Now, the look on Spicoli's face, the hurt in Penn's eyes, is again played real. The adage, play the comedy real, and it's more funny than if you're winking at the audience. Now, in addition to the continuity of the pizza, because when we see the close-up of the pizza and all the kids grab a slice and Mr. Hand grabs a slice, it's clearly just a plain cheese pizza. It's not a double sausage and cheese. That bothers me. And also what bothers me a little bit is there is enough pizza I mean, what's Spicoli going to eat an entire cheese pizza in the classroom? So three kids have come up and taken a slice and Mr. Hand has a slice and there's four slices left. Like that's plenty. I get it for the dramaturgy of the scene. Uh, Spicoli has to be the aggrieved party in the end. But really, and to my point, I think you could again call this a draw because it's not as if, as if Spicoli gets sent to the office or, or punished or penalized in any way. His punishment is that half his pizza gets eaten which is a brilliant punishment for Mr. Hand to dole out. But I think you also have to say that's a win for Spicoli. That's why I'm easy. Hey, bud, what's I'm your easy problem? Like Sunday morning. Yeah. The 14th appearance of Spicoli is the wonderful Mr. Vargas hospital scenes. Everyone loves Mr. Vargas, Vincent Schiavelli, one of the most distinctive and iconic that guy character actors in film history. He does a great job as, uh, <laughs> as Mr. Vargas. I mean, he, you know, it's one of those things where it's not great acting per se, but it's a great awareness of the use of his own persona and the way in which he sort of stretches his limbs a little bit can be evidenced in the great Sanka scene. I just switched to Sanka. Have a heart. That's such a Vincent Schiavelli thing. 
his hangdog delivery, his use of his physicality, his use of his face and his awareness of how unique that looks, it's great. And this is a great little Spicoli Conduct moment. yourselves with the utmost maturity. The students are filing into the cadaver room. Hey, you in my class? I am today. <laughs> What's great is, after Spicoli delivers this line, Mr. Vargas takes a moment and Schiavelli does this great thing where he, he's considering it and then he sort of nods like, oh, okay. I always think of this as sort of something from an era when I went to high school. I was in high school from, what, 83 to 87? And I felt like you could get away with stuff like this then. I don't know what it's like now. I, I imagine it's so tightly controlled, you probably can't go on a field trip you're not supposed to be on. But back in the day, you could. And again, this is such a, a smart aspect I'll chalk up to the screenplay, although I will chalk something up to Sean Penn shortly in this scene. But the screenplay is so smart to include Spicoli here because I think it tells us that Spicoli, A, yes, likes to get out of classes, but B, like this is an adventure, a stoned adventure at that. And there's a great scene at the end when all the kids are walking out sort of haunted by the horrors of the dissected corpse that they witnessed. All except Spicoli, who is laughing and showing someone something in his notebook, like he drew something. <laughs> and it's just a great little throwaway touch. But the scene here is another Sean Penn improv line. Yes, Greg. Who are these guys? Most of them are derelicts, Greg. They sold their bodies to medicine for money. About uh, $30, I think. Twenty-five. Righteous bucks. This $30? Twenty-five. Righteous bucks. here is named Arthur. Arthur was good enough to die last week of heart failure, and we are fortunate enough today to view his body in its pristine state. Now here, an incision has been made. The ribs have been sawed off, allowing us to remove the breastplate and really observe the human organs as they exist in their natural state. Here we have the human lungs, and here is the human heart, which you can see is actually located in the center of your chest. <laughs> oh, gnarly! Now, <laughs> in addition to a great Vincent Schiavelli button on that gnarly joke, which is, he's, he, he nods like it is gnarly uh, in such a great way while holding up the heart. Amy Heckerling says that when they filmed this scene, Sean Penn had 50 different catchphrases for this. And this was the one that just resonated the most, <laughs> which is so good. And it's a great scene because it takes the kids out of school. It takes them out of their environment. It puts them in the adult world in, in a way that they aren't in the rest of the film, I mean, they are because they're working at restaurants populated by adults or they're in the mall where there are adults, but here they're kind of in the real world and there are real world consequences for things. And they're all kind of uh, rattled and shattered as they leave the hospital scene, of course, except for Spicoli, who again is unfazed. And that's part of the genius of Spicoli. Now the 16th appearance is a uh, dialogue free appearance. We are back in 
Mr. Hand's class and they're taking the American history exam. Spicoli is sitting in his desk with sunglasses on and he's filling in those little test circles that you're supposed to have a number two pencil for. He's filling them in in the shape of a surfboard with Jeff written in the middle, which is brilliant. Spicoli's 17th appearance is back in his room again, and it's one of the few overt drug use moments he's smoking a bong. Well, you should be coming on pretty soon, dude. How much do you smoke? This will be a little demonstration of that. Listen, listen up. That was my skull. I'm so wasted. What's funny is that these catchphrases that became so well-known are kind of, in some ways, the dumbest Spicoli moments. Like, of course, that shouldn't be a surprise, right? Like, what does pop culture seize on? The genius, arcane, small minutia moments that I'm hopefully signaling out here for you, or, I'm so wasted. Of course they do, but okay, that's part of it. Uh, so anyway, this brilliant final scene, again, this dance, this, this duet between Mr. Hand and Spicoli, reaches its... Uh, it's, it's crescendo in their coming together, not in Mr. Hand's territory, but in Spicoli's territory, which I think is very important because I think it shows us something about Mr. Hand. You know, I said before that he doesn't really have multi-dimensions. Even in the scene in Spicoli's room, he's still Mr. Hand. He's still fairly brusque and rigid. But the fact that he's there, the fact that he took the time out of his day in the evening to go to Spicoli's house in order to help him pass his class. That's what he's doing there. That's such a humanizing thing for Mr. Hand. He doesn't have to do that. Spicoli clearly failed the exam by drawing a surfboard with Jeff in the middle of it. But there's something about Spicoli that got through to Mr. Hand, that he felt the urge to show up there and try and help him. And that's such an amazing thing. What is this stuff? Doesn't that stuff cause brain damage? Only if you take it like every day for a month. Bitchin'. <laughs> hey, dude, I'll pick you up in the van and go to the dance. There. Jeff, you have company. Get out of here, Curtis. I don't hear you unless you knock. <laughs> this is an awesome scene between him and Curtis. Spicoli's got code, man. It's He's better. Entree. He's got rules, but he can't pronounce entree. Well, uh, were you, uh, were you going somewhere tonight, Jeff? Yeah, a graduation dance. It's the last school fiesta of the year. Hmm, well, I'm afraid we've got some business to discuss here, Jeff. Did I do something wrong, Mr. Hand? According to my calculations, uh, Mr. Spicoli, uh, you wasted a total of, uh, eight hours of my time this year. And rest assured, that is a kind estimate. Now I have the unique pleasure of squaring our account. Tonight, you and I are going to talk in great detail about the Davis Agreement, all the associated treaties, and the American Revolution in particular. If you can just turn to page 47 of uh, Land of Truth and Liberty. Oh, I left that book in my locker, Mr. Hand. In that case, uh, I'm glad I remembered to bring an extra copy, uh, just for you. The ping pong of this scene is so great. The back and forth. Spicoli's just, imagine being incredibly stoned and your rigid, uptight, militaristic history teacher shows up in your room and wants to conduct eight hours worth of classwork. 
Spicoli's face is so brilliant. He, it's, it's uncomprehending, but it's getting through. It's like sands through an hourglass. And when Mr. Hand says, if you just turn to page 47, Spicoli's face lights up because here's his out. He doesn't have the book, so he won't have to do the work, right? And the genius of Mr. Hand, of course, knowing that this would happen, this would happen. And he has an extra copy. And then Spicoli's face falls again. It's, it, it, it's out on Ray Walston's face. Uh, he has the upper hand. But again, you know, if we're scoring it kind of 2-1, as I think we were before, uh, here, you know, we're going to have a, <laughs> we're going to have a draw. We're going to have rapprochement as these two inalienable forces who are going to head forward on the tracks of their own will and personality, regardless of obstacle. They approach each other at great speed in this scene, but they don't crash together. They stop just far enough away for each to look upon the other and appreciate him for who he truly is. And that's one of the great closing moments in the Spicoli hand relationship. I'm so wasted. And then his 18th scene is we are still in the room, um, but the part is we're going to hear some of the so best. saying was, hey, you know, we left this England place because it was bogus. So if we don't get some cool rules ourselves, pronto, we'll just be bogus too. Yeah? Very close, Jeff. Well, I think I've made my point with you tonight, huh? Mr. Han, do you have a guy like me in class every year? You know, a guy who you make an example of? You'll find out next year. No way. As soon as I cruise history, I'm not coming near your side of the building. Cruise history? As soon as I pass your class. <laughs> if you pass. Val, you're going to flunk me? Don't worry, Spicoli. You'll probably squeak by. Yeah. <laughs> Aloha, Mr. Hand. Aloha, Spicoli. <laughs> this is so good. Ray Walston is a pro, okay? As he exits Spicoli's room, he looks up to his left, and there is a full centerfold snatch shot, and he just looks at it, and he shakes his head in disbelief and exits. But this is, again, this is the great coming together. Aloha, Mr. Hand. Aloha, Spicoli. And they shake hands. And this dance that they've done all school year comes to a close, a fitting close. And then our final Spicoli scenes take place at the dance, which is great. I think it's great, as Ted pointed out in the episode, you know, it's cool that in the movie, everybody participates in everything. It's not like the stoners don't go to the football games or don't go to the dance. However, ironically, like they're still kids and they're still participating in high school life. So Spicoli has a couple more nonverbal scenes where the van arrives at the dance uh, his childlike recognition as the band plays Wooly Bully. And he says, hey, dude, I know that song. And then he's dragged onto the stage uh, by Stoltz and Edwards. And yes, I will point out, there is uh, some really particular uh, pen-esque Spicoli work on stage uh, with Wooly Bully because his little air drumming and his, his dancing feet, 
are particularly well used. This little drumming thing that he does is so good. And then he... I don't know how many takes they did of this because he, he, he just walks onto the hands of his two stoner buddies and they carry him into the crowd and everybody's cheering. It's great physical acting from Penn. And then, of course, we get to uh, one of the other of my most favorite Spicoli scenes, which is the Brad Mighty Mart robbery scene. <laughs> this scene is a movie unto itself. Um... The physical acting that Penn does in the Mighty Mart scene is brilliant. When you watch the scene again, just from the moment he comes in the door, he's fully in character and he's fully occupying a specific Spicoli munchy run type persona. You worked at All-American Burger. Seven months ago. Uh, I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> the revelation of the smallest factoid is of is of uh, infinitesimal, <laughs> is of infinite joy to Spicoli. I knew it. I was right. <laughs> this kind of acting, he's selecting things, and he's 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 taking like a cinnamon bun and he's removing a piece of lint from his change that he has. And he's trying to do the math. Does he have enough? And he doesn't know. Why don't you get a job, Spicoli? What for? You need money. <laughs> All I need are some tasty waves, cool buzz, and I'm fine. Thanks. Can I use your bathroom? Yeah, go ahead. Right. This first door on the left. Best part. Like up this ramp? First door on the left. Okay, that, that's the most brilliant physical acting he does in the movie. He can't figure out what first door on the left is. And as the robbery takes place, uh, and it's Spicoli who, I mean, Hamilton is the hero, but it's Spicoli who surprises the burglar enough so that Hamilton can throw a hot pot of disgusting Mighty Mart coffee in his face. And then, you know, Brad gets the gun. And then we have the most fitting possible ending line you could have. Awesome. Totally awesome. All right, Hamilton. I mean, that's just so good. That's the last, you have to give Spicoli the last line of the whole film. It couldn't be any better. And... What's great about it is the first line, awesome, totally awesome. He's completely genuine, right? He's like thrilled to have been present for such an impressive crime-fighting moment. And his respect for Hamilton is ultimate. And Spicoli, if you look at all the other characters, he's the only person who's really in the same place at the end of the film as he was in the beginning. Everyone else has either had accomplishments or setbacks. So 
Brad is representative of one of those guys whose best life was in high school, but as he aged out of high school, uh, it starts falling apart. He loses his job. Uh, he's, you know, uh, but he's given this nice moment at the end where he's a hero. And Rad and Stacy have a love affair that's burgeoning. Damone is busted for scalping tickets. He gets his comeuppance. Uh, but Spicoli is unchanging. I think if we visited Spicoli today, 40 years later, he'd probably be the same person. And I think that's the genius of the character is that they knew enough not to fuck with it. They let it be what it is. And as a result, it's, it's, it's an indelible and edible, iconic, classic American film performance. And I think I'm hopeful that if anyone who doesn't listen to the podcast discovers this, it'll be because someone passes word around like, did you hear that episode of that podcast where that guy just like talked about all the Spicoli scenes from Fast Times? That just seems like it's something worthy of putting out into the world, whether anyone pays attention or not. I'm glad I did the definitive, I hope, Spicoli episode. I hope I did it justice. And I hope you check the movie out. If you haven't, you can find all these scenes or just scroll through uh, and you can, uh, you can message me and I'll give you the times of all the different scenes if you have it on, uh, on Apple. All right. So again, thanks for listening. And I appreciate all of your support on this episode and all throughout the podcast. Mm-hmm.